0: and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Lord,
1: we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the instruction that you give us from your word. Now, Lord, we ask that we would be humble, we'd be teachable, that I, as your messenger, would simply be your mouthpiece, that you would have your way with us. Accomplish your will, Lord. Speak freely to us from your word, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you like modern art? Okay, there's two hands that are up, that's good. Um, I find it very abstract and confusing, but I think that's the point. Uh, Apparently, when you look at modern art, you're supposed to know and understand what the painter is getting across, but it's really embarrassing when you're standing there looking at a, a painting and you're not getting what that person is trying to get across. And maybe you're standing amidst people that are going, oh, I see it. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And you're just like, what's wrong with me? And I remember uh, a little while back going to Stanford University. They have the Museum of Modern Art, if you've never been there. Highly encourage you to go. It's great stuff. They've got some Rodans there that are stunning. Um, but I remember looking at this one piece of art. And I don't know if it was a special display or if it was on their normal um, uh, in their normal uh, gallery, but it was just kind of weird. It was it was a, a kind of a plain canvas with a, a black dot and some spray of red and yellow kind of just all over that canvas. And my first thought, honestly, was this could have been painted by an elementary student. But then I put my sophisticated hat on <laughs> and I started to think a little bit more about this. Maybe... This was a canvas that was left on the counter of the sink where they would wash their, their, you know, their, their um, brushes. Thank you very much. You know, or they'd shake them out, you know, to get the water out, and somehow it got there, and it wasn't planned. Or maybe then I thought, uh huh, it, it could have been something planned. The person actually laid it there for a whole month, and, and as a result, this is what buildup there was on this canvas, and and what a what a wonderful story it would tell. And maybe the, the, the name of it would be Washing the Brushes, you know, like, wow. you know. And especially if you have a coffee in your hand. It just makes the whole experience that much better. But friends, that would be too logical and too simplistic, wouldn't it? Now, from what I'm told, to look at these kind of paintings, you must kind of look at them from different angles. And so I tried that, and it still didn't work. And then you're told, well, maybe you have to kind of go across the room, and it will all just kind of come together. And so I went across the room, and the penny still didn't drop. So I thought to myself, let me think through this, what is actually going on here? And I came up with something I really thought was very, very sophisticated. It reminds me of the never-ending chaos of life. It is a life full of heartache and anger, trials and suffering that are all leading us to the black hole of emptiness. Wow. See, now I really feel like I'm, I'm one of the crowd coming up with something like that, right? And then you go over to the brass plate that's next to it, and it says something like, you know, the coming of winter, and you're like, what? What in the world is going on here? Now, I know you guys can relate to all that. Now, you guys probably all, also know the, the Spanish ne- uh, painter by the name of Pablo Picasso, um, and he's considered the father of modern art. And when you look at one of his abstract paintings, you're left to wonder what he was trying to say, because the eyes are like in different places on the head, and the nose is usually disproportioned on the side of the cheek, and the lips are on the other side, but they're not where they're supposed to be. It's almost like, it looks like a, a Mr. Potato Head in Rebellion, you know, just the wrong parts in the wrong places, So when I look at it, I say to myself, this is really a bad painting, right? But those who are really sophisticated and in the art club of life will just scoff at that and call him a genius. And many people consider that he was because of the impact that he had on painting. One such person, I I just was looking last night as I was thinking through this, and one person says, in admiration, his work is magnificent, it shows us what it, what it is to be human, exposing hidden layers of evil or tenderness. And I'm looking at his stuff saying, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Um, I see a distorted face that needs to be rearranged. Right? I don't see what others see or they're supposed to see. I would much rather look at a painting that is realism, right? Uh, a landscape. A landscape. Right, you look there's the landscape? There it is on the canvas. That's a pretty good cop- capture of that landscape, or a ship, or, or people enjoying life, or a lighthouse shining uh, its beam brightly, or a portrait that reflects the individual and, and is an accurate reflection of that individual. That is, what is being painted is actually on the canvas, and it's in right proportion. That's what is aesthetically pleasing to me. In my research I'm Pablo Picasso. I came across one of his sayings that I thought was interesting. He says, art is a lie. It makes us realize the truth. I thought, well, what in the world does that mean? So I did a little hunting around, and this is at best what I could understand what he was trying to get at, that art is not real, but it's only a copy of what is real, but in looking at it, we are drawn to the truth. Interesting. So, in, in a sense, as we look at his distorted paintings, we see that it's not real, and what we're supposed to do then is come to the conclusion, in our minds, we're saying, no, that, that eye actually goes here, and this nose goes here, and this, these lips go here, and so it's distorted, and, and we're trying now to fight for the truth as we're looking at that. There may be something to that. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, why so much time talking about Pablo Picasso? What does that? that have anything to do with what we're talking about this morning. And the reason I'm doing that is because much of our culture has been influenced by the nuances of modern art. Just think about this. When we look at life, we've all grown accustomed to viewing it through the lens, or a lens that is highly influenced by our culture, even if we are faithful followers of Christ. We have difficulty seeing clearly because we take so much of culture and we've embraced so much of it that as we look at life, we have to fight away from what the culture is saying and what the culture says you need to focus your attention on, and so we have difficulty seeing what God wants us to see is true about life. We desperately need to begin to see as God sees, to view life and people through the lens of Scripture. Now, you guys have seen me do this before. Just pick up your Bibles again. Just remember, if I, if I ever am at a time when you're having a time reflecting on me as pastor, one thing I want you to remember is this, right? Pastor Rod would always do this, right? Look at life through the lens of God's word. That is our goal. Our goal is to see life through the lens, the revelation of God's truth. And in doing that, we're able to clear away the thinking of our culture that distorts life and doesn't allow us to see it as God sees it. And in this passage, we are going to come face to face with a, a new way of looking at life. Notice the text in verse 7 in particular, we find this very, very well known statement. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, we naturally, left to ourselves, will see man by virtue of the outward appearance. But God sees things so differently. Let me just draw your attention to how in the previous chapter, we're told that God is not like man, that he would lie or regret. In this section, God is not like man. He sees man differently. So we don't naturally see the things that God sees. The way we see is distorted by our sin and our desires and our sinfulness. We suffer from a blindness that thinks that it's clever and sophisticated, but God doesn't see as man sees. The way in which God looks at man is so different to how we look at man. So the question we want to ask and answer this morning is this. In the flow of the context of 1 Samuel is this. How does God choose a king? How does he see to choose that king in a way that is different than us? So how does he come up with David being the answer? How does God choose a king over Israel to serve him? And you will notice that his actions are unusual, unconventional, unimaginable. His methods are unmistakable and undeniable. And his wisdom is unique and altogether foreign to men. And the aim of this passage is to teach us about what is important to God when it comes to evaluating people. To see as God sees. And to recognize also that when God looks at us, he is not impressed with the outward appearance. That God has this great ability to see through that to what is important. And so this morning, we wanna follow the structure of this passage In three sections, let me give them to you just so that you have them. First of all, we're gonna look at the Lord's rousing, the Lord's rousing. Secondly, we're gonna look at the Lord's choosing and then the Lord's anointing. His rousing, his choosing, and his anointing. So let's jump right in at chapter 16 and verse one. I'm using this word rousing, which means to bring out of a state of sleep or unconsciousness or inactivity or apathy or depression. And as this chapter begins, we find Samuel in a state of sadness. But God has some good news for Samuel that will lift his spirits, that will draw him out to live and to serve God another day. What is the good news? God says, I have provided for myself a king. So this good news about God's king is the answer to both Samuel and Israel. It's there to encourage them, to comfort them, to motivate them, to wake them up out of their depressed state. The word provide here is a form also of the word to see. In fact, in in this section of God's word, you will find the word, different forms of the word, to see, mentioned nine times. You can't all see them in the English translation, but they're there. There's a sense here that God is saying, listen, how I see is different than how you see. And I'm gonna show you a little bit about what that looks like. God says, I have seen for myself a king. We'll see that God looks and sees in a particular way. But what should catch our attention is the contrast in the language God uses here as he speaks with Samuel. Now remember, when the people of Israel rejected him as king, they asked Samuel to choose a king for themselves. Let me just point you to a few texts here. 1 Samuel 8, 5, the elders had said to Samuel, appoint for us a king. And then Samuel referred to the king they were demanding as your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Again, that's chapter 8, verse 18. And the Lord told Samuel, make a king for them. Chapter 8, verse 22. And Saul was further described as the king whom you have chosen for, for whom you have asked, your king. And that all comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 12. This Saul Yes, God ultimately revealed, but he, uh, he was the chosen king of the people. And they were looking for a king that would be like the nations, a man who would be strong, a man that would be handsome, a man that could lead us into battle. But now God says to Samuel, I have provided or seen for myself a king, for myself a king. In other words, the people had their opportunity with the choice of their king, and he was a dismal failure. Now Samuel, I have some good news. I have chosen my king. Friends, that is good news. God is not dependent on the choices of man to accomplish his purposes. Whether it's in Samuel's day, or whether it's today. As you look around this world, as Christians, as a part of us here in America that are used to our comfort, that are feeling a little antsy, why is this big machine of ISIS now seeming to take the attention of the world and it's targeted at Christians? I thought this was supposed to be a safe place. I thought thought this was supposed to be a comfortable place and God is, is not taken by surprise with anything that is happening in this world. So what is the good news? It is that God has provided for himself a king, but he will be a different kind of king. He will be a man after God's own heart, chapter 13, verse 14 told us. He will be one of Saul's neighbors who is better than Saul, which is what we found in 1 Samuel chapter 13 also. And because of this good news, there's some things that result. First of all, Samuel's grief, Samuel's grief is turned into comfort. And this is where we pick it up at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now why is Samuel grieving? You know, we could, we could come to this text, and I think my first reaction as I read through this passage was like, God is rebuking him here. And there may be a gentle rebuke that is going on here, but this is the kind of rebuke that is supposed to be breathing life into Samuel. Samuel is grieving for Saul. Why would Samuel be grieving for Saul? Saul is a failure, a failure. But remember, Samuel has been with Saul since the beginning. God sent Samuel to find and anoint Saul. And it has been a remarkable couple of days in that story with some strange twists and turns that could only be part of God's divine providence, ending up with Saul's anointing and a dinner celebration. And then Saul had been present, or Samuel had been present when God revealed Saul to the people when they cast the lots and divided the people and it turned to Saul, but he was nowhere to be found because he's hiding behind the baggage. And even though Saul was the people's choice, Samuel had been his counselor, his teacher, and advisor for much of his ministry. So Saul had so much potential, and and Samuel recognizes that he blew it. Every time, God had said, hey, this is what I want you to do. Still, when God told Samuel that he was rejecting Saul as king, Samuel was angry and cried out to God all night. And when God finally spoke to Saul through Samuel to tell him that he had rejected Saul, Samuel went home grieving over Saul. That's how the last chapter ends. Samuel had poured himself into grooming Saul to be king. He had invested years of time and energy. And certainly it was hard to see him rejected. I think there's something that we can say here about Samuel. Samuel cared. He cared about the person that he was pouring his life into. Even though he ultimately was a failure, he still cared. And not only is Samuel grieving for Saul, he's grieving also for Israel. Israel. Because when the king is disobedient, when the king doesn't listen to the word of God, that ripples down and that affects the people. What is Israel going to do? They have no king. Samuel will not listen to God's word. He will not obey God's word. And now he's rejected. What has come of the nation of Israel. And they certainly themselves had acted foolishly and arrogantly and rebelled against God, saying, we want a king like the other nations. And friends, we can learn some some things from Samuel's grief here. God was right to reject Saul, but it was still a very sad situation. When was the last time you wept over the demise of a servant of God. seems every few years there's a big-name pastor, a big-name Christian leader who either falls from grace because of an inappropriate relationship or more recently um, with a particular pastor that had a lot of notoriety that ended up being kicked out of his church because of kind of an abusive, um, controlling kind of um, oppressive uh, presence and, and, and factor and, and people on the internet are saying all these horrible things and I, I, I agree with, with, the, with the direction and the, and the reasons and the understanding of all that but listen, are we grieving for that man? Are we grieving for his wife? Are we grieving for those children and the churches that that person has overseen over the course of years? Or do we simply gossip? Do we speak in ways that are harsh and unloving? So how have you responded when a pastor or shepherd has lost their way? Have you prayed for that person? When was the last time you grieved over the state of the church? The church in the Bay Area, the, the church in America, the church that you left or are considering leaving. Have you grieved over that? Have you grieved over the sinfulness that is so rampant in the church in America? Have you grieved over the distortion of God's truth and the gospel among the church in America? Do we grieve? Do we care? The church is in a state of theological confusion. It has syncretized humanism and secularism and political correctness and pop psychology with the teachings of scripture. And so many times, people are left lacking godly counsel and direction. And as a result, we have a weak gospel that is heard from the pulpits and weak theology among the people. Friends, all of that, should concern us. All of that should drive us to our knees. All of that should be fuel for weeping. And it's easy because we believe God's truth to be true. It's easy when when we want to see God's truth just disseminated and proclaimed to end up being cynical and sarcastic, even arrogant about the condition of the church in America. But do we grieve over it? Samuel here at least was grieving. and We shouldn't knock him for that. He had reason to grieve. Just imagine if you spent the better part of 10 years pouring yourself into someone's life, who had all the opportunity, but wouldn't listen. Do you pray for God's church that his pastors would be revived over the gospel? Do you pray for a love for theology that doesn't beat people down, but clarifies and helps to explain the word and the world that we can live in. Friends, there is good news. Even in the context of all that kind of mess, there is good news. The Lord has chosen for himself a king. And we know in that statement we're not there talking about David. David. In our context, we're not talking about David. We're talking about the son of David, who is Jesus Christ. And you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ. He comes from the line of David. He is our hope. He is our good news. So even with the failure among pastors and elders of churches, even with the the failure of churches and denominations, God is still on his throne and is providentially working his plan. That is good news. So God isn't done with Israel. He's not done with Samuel. God turns his grief into comfort. But then we see that God takes Samuel's fear and turns it into faith. Look at verse two, and Samuel said, how can I go? Because God had told him a little earlier there in verse one. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel responds now, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Saul is still the king. He's been rejected by God, but he's still sitting on the throne. Now one commentator said that where, where Samuel was at this point meant that in order to get to Bethlehem, he had to go through where Saul was. But not only that, if he's going to go and he's going to anoint someone else king, well, what if the king hears about it? Samuel had every reason on a human level to fear Saul. Not too long ago Saul had been ready to go against the voice of the people as well as the voice of God and sacrifice his son for not keeping Saul's foolish vow. Then rather than utterly destroy the Amalekites, he spares Agag and the best of the spoils And the reality was, and we'll see it more and more as the story unfolds, that Saul was getting very irrational in his behavior. But still, if this is God giving a command, we sit here, we read, do we not expect that Samuel should trust God and do it? If God says to do it, you should do it. Yes, that's true. But God understands our weaknesses and our struggles. Samuel's reticence here, Samuel's fear here, you could say was sinful, or you could say was honest. Listen, God stooped down to help Moses with his stammering tongue when Moses says, I can't do it. Did he not? God stooped down and helped Gideon with his fretful uncertainty. And now God is helping Samuel with his weakness, his fear. God helps the weakness of his servants, but also rouses them to a holy boldness through a renewed faith in his word. What does God tell Samuel to do? Notice what he says. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel's fearful. I'm not sure how I'm going to do this because I don't want to upset Saul. And God says, Hey, listen, I have a plan for you. Here, go, go do this way. Now, some have read this passage and say, You know, isn't this somehow God manipulating some kind of deceptive plan? But it was actually pretty legitimate for a, a prophet or a priest to go to a family and to celebrate a sacrifice with them and a meal with them. And so, it's not a manipulation of a deceptive plan, but it's really just God saying, listen, go and do this, but conceal the purpose of your visit. And you will reveal that as time goes on. Okay. So, he gives him now some encouragement. And friends, listen, we've we got to be careful because it is true that because of our weaknesses, those weaknesses may be sin, but... God also understands our sinful tendencies, and He encourages us, and He strengthens us, and He comes at us with His words and says, "Listen, I know that you're afraid. I know that you probably don't feel like you have any capacity to talk to your neighbors. I know that you may not comprehend everything about this gospel." I'm gonna give you strength and you need to trust me in the process, I am the one who is accomplishing my purposes through you. So here's what you can do. God condescends to us, he helps us in our times of difficulty and need. So there we see the Lord rousing Samuel to do what God desires for him to do and that is to seek out this one among Jesse's sons, because God has chosen for himself a king. Secondly, we move into this next section that I'm calling the Lord's choosing. Samuel did what Saul failed to do. Namely, he obeyed the word of the Lord. It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. There's some refreshing words, right? And came to Bethlehem. And there he met the elders of the city who came to meet him and they are trembling. And they say, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. That was understandable that the elders of the city with the prophet coming would be a little bit concerned. There's probably two reasons for that. Um, It would seem that Samuel and Saul were in conflict and that the nation of Israel was aware of that because Samuel did not, Saul did not listen to Samuel. He was not listening to the word of God. If you remember the end of the story, Saul goes to Gibeah, Samuel goes off to Ramah. They're divided. There's something going on here. The king is not listening to the prophet. That's not a good thing for the nation. And so there may even be some divide and some people may be concerned about is he going to force us somehow to take sides with him? There's a legitimate concern there. But I think it's probably the second reason. Although it was fitting for a priest or a prophet to visit a relatively small place like Bethlehem, when it is the prophet of God, was it when it's the prophet of God in the land and he's coming to your village, it could very well be that he's wanting to approach someone for a means of confrontation and rebuke. And they're concerned about their village. They're concerned about that. That's why I say, do you come peaceably? And he says, I come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. So they are settled. They're okay with their understanding. And so he eventually provides the the resources for the offering. And now we find him in the context of Jesse and his sons and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So after the people have been consecrated they begin the sacrificial process. That would take a little while and that of course eventually would be the means by which they would celebrate the feast. In other words the sacrifice was offered, some of it's burnt but some of it's actually used for the feast. So there's time involved here and during that time This is when now Samuel is going to do his thing, interacting with the sons of Jesse. These are the sons that God is talking about. And so as we move into this little section, the scene really is one of the most remarkable scenes in history because it involves and reveals for us two completely different ways of seeing, two different ways of evaluating man. One that is worldly, man's way of seeing. One that is godly, God's way of seeing. And so the first one is seeing as man sees. Seeing as man sees. Jesse had seven sons and Samuel began with Eliab. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And this is the first guy. Enter Eliab. Apparently, tall, strong, handsome, good appearance. Sam, Samuel's problem here is that he had adopted the thinking of the Israelites, and so when he saw Eliab, he automatically thinks to himself, "Look at the height of this young man. Look at his appearance. Certainly, this is what a king of Israel should look like." I mean, he's he's anticipating. He's waiting for God to say, "Yes, you found my king, my chosen king." If we were living today, Eliah probably was a senior athlete at the local Bethlehem High School. He's <laughs> probably uh, have scholarships from all the right schools. And all his teachers would believe that the words future and success would be his two middle names. I mean, he's just, wow, Eliab. But do you remember the last tall and handsome man that seemed to be the kind of king that Israel needed? From Samuel's perspective, Eliab, with Eliab, he saw the man of God was most likely, the man that God was most likely to choose, I should say. And Samuel was at a crucial moment in Israel's history. Now think about this. In chapter 4, Israel chose the ark, and the disaster followed. Remember, they took the ark into battle? In chapter 8, Israel chose a king, and another disaster followed. But now Samuel is on the scene, and we're hoping that unlike Israel, that he will listen to the voice of God and obey. And friends it is easy for us to drift from how God thinks to how man who is without God thinks two different ways of seeing and so many times when a, a church is looking for men to serve in its leadership choosing a pastor or selecting men to serve as elders or deacons the measure those men they measure those men by what they can see their image their cleverness their business skills He's handsome, he's hip, he can clearly run a business and he's a sharp dresser and wow, he can really communicate and his children all just line up right next to him when they're there at church and he just has everything seemingly in order and the issues of the heart often are assumed and not probed. but sadly like Israel, the fact that they are not probing the heart is evidence that they actually want a man Measured by man's standards and not God's. Without God, sorry, what God is teaching us is that we are in desperate need of his counsel and his discernment. What God is trying to teach us here is that we really struggle at seeing what is really and truly important. Now, let's look at how God sees. God sees in a different way. He sees the heart. But God's counsel to Samuel now is also counsel to us. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. His appearance, his stature, is insignificant to me, God says. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's just pause there. If you open up a magazine, what is being promoted? It's it's man in all his glory, in his clothing, in the stuff that he has, in the makeup that she would wear, in the hairstyles. It's all this glamour. It's all this glitz. And we have society that's just being dragged along, trying to conform, trying to measure up to these standards, these external things that man has put in place. As many of you know, I grew up in England. And back in my day, this would be back in the 70s and, well, mostly the late 70s and stuff, the English culture um, was divided in the youth based on the kind of music you listened to. So if you listened to rock and roll, which I don't know if they had a category like that, they had like a heavy metal category, you look the part. If you listen to punk music, you'll look the part. If you listen to more kind of a funk music, you'll look the part. And those that were, there was like 15 different categories. I counted them one time. It was just so many. But that you kind of identified yourself with that group. And you fit into that group based on what you listened to and based on what you wore. And certain groups didn't get along with other groups. And friends, so much of this world is like that. You know, this person is what? They're trendy, and they've got this modern look. You know, I go to the stores now. It's like, get a modern fit. I can't, I can't do a modern fit. You know, I, I, I joke this way. It says, you know, bell, bell-bottom pants went out of style. Now, in my world, we come out with bell-top pants. It's just, I, everything's backwards, you know? All right? so, so life changes, but styles and fads are always kind of weaving in and weaving out and what's popular now and what's popular then. It's all about the externals. It's all about what we wear. It's all about the stuff that we have to keep up with what society says is important. But God says, wait a second. Those external things are not the means by which I measure you. They're not the means by which I measure man God has a view. He sees things differently than man sees. And God's view is not limited. He is not deceived by the outward appearance of man. No, he sees through that outward facade into the very heart of man. Man's point of view is going to be different from God's view because man is so drawn by the outward appearance. And that's the danger for us. We're so drawn to that. And as mankind looks On the outward appearance, he comes to varying conclusions. And we can differ on what we think is important and true based on what we see. As I said, our culture dictates that. Fads and fashion dictate that. The country in which we live or the one we come from dictates that. You know, I've been different places in the world, and I'm always told by people, it's like, we can spot you a mile away that you're an American. Why is that? Because you're wearing jeans and it's the kind of jeans that you wear, and it's what you wear with those jeans, right? And, um, you know, one of my first times in Russia, I went over there, and like, we can spot you on. Well, how come? Because you don't have pointed shoes on, right? Because everyone has these pointed shoes on that, you know, you, when you go to knock on a door, you have to turn sideways because they're so long, you know what I mean? It's all culture. It's all them trying to determine what's important. And you're in if you have the right thing. So mankind can look at the same data of outward appearance and have a totally different perspective on what is good and proper. But God's way of seeing is unique. He looks into the heart of man. Another way of understanding this verse is to translate it more literally. And this is what it would say if you translate it more literally. And this is actually pretty impactful if you think it through. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man sees according to the eyes. But the Lord sees according to the heart. Now it changes a little bit of a nuance here. Let me ask you a question Does God have eyes? No, right? <laughs> That's a trick question, Rod, right? right? Remember, God is not like man, but God uses anthropomorphisms to help us understand who he is. So, when God looks at man, that doesn't necessarily mean that he has these physical eyes that he's looking at. He's looking out of his very being into the very being of man. You understand that? In other words, the spiritual part of you is what God is concerned with. He's not concerned with the facade of you. So, man looks with his eyes, God looks with his heart. Let's just stop and think about this word heart for a moment. We're not talking about what beats in your chest here. When the word heart is used in this context, in a spiritual context, it is talking about man who has two parts. He is body and he is spirit. That spirit is also called his Heart. Other words that are used that are synonyms in the Bible for the word heart are soul, spirit, mind, inner man. These are all describing. If you take away all that is physical about you. It's that spiritual part of you. It's actually that arena where you think, where your desires are developed, where you ponder God's word. It's the place where you pray from. It's not just your mind that's praying, it's your heart that is praying out to God. It's, it's your heart that grieves. So man is limited and and, and distorted and and he naturally drifts towards seeing the externals but God in his infinite and pure wisdom is drawn to see the heart of man. See that? It's not that God has eyes, it's that God in his being sees that heart. He, he He is attracted to and he penetrates all of that facade that we see. And because God See into Eliab's heart. He rescues Samuel by rejecting him. And when Samuel looks at Abinadab, it's clear that God had not chosen him. And then he looks at Shammah, another of Jesse's sons, and he again is told this is not the one that God has chosen. All seven sons of Jesse appear before. Samuel, and it says, The Lord has not chosen these. And then we find Samuel wondering, Okay, God says, I have chosen for myself a king from one of these sons of Jesse. He's scratching his head. What's going on here? I've had all these guys come in front of me. So what's happening here? And then, verse 11, he asks the logical question Are all your sons here? And he, that's Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. He's, he's out keeping the sheep. I mean, what, do you, what do you want to do with the youngest guy? We're not exactly sure what Jesse meant or expected with those words. Did he expect Samuel to think, oh, okay, that makes sense. Someone needs to stay with the sheep. May have. Or was he implying, oh, don't worry about him. He's the youngest so he's not worth thinking about, but you know, if I'll, you want him, I'll get him. Whatever Jesse meant by these words, Samuel's next words get to the heart of the matter. He says, Get him, or we won't eat. Now, you know what that's like when you have a bunch of men who are smelling burnt flesh. So they quickly go and they get David. And Samuel said to Jesse, as we said, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So David is fetched, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and, and beautiful, uh, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Now a part of you is probably saying, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Whoa, whoa. God just spent a whole bunch of time saying, Man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart and now the narrator takes some time to emphasize three characteristics about David. Doesn't that seem to go against the grain of that principle? The answer is not at all. In fact, it reinforces that principle and adds more clarity. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was also handsome with riveting eyes and a fair complexion. In other words, it wasn't his externals that God cared about. It wasn't his externals that God was drawn to. God only cared about his heart. Let's just step back a little bit and say this. We want to be careful with a statement like, God doesn't look on the outward appearance but only on the heart. As if to say that the people that God chooses are going to be ugly and dress badly and never shower. It's okay for God to choose someone who has a heart after God, who happens to be handsome, who happens to be maybe a certain stature, who may have, a, have pretty eyes. Let's not knock that, but that is not the measure, and that's not the means by which God chooses David. And then we'll think about the Lord's anointing, the Lord's anointing. In verse 1, the Lord tells Samuel to stop grieving and fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And now that God has revealed to Samuel that David is to be the next king, he takes David and he, is, he anoints him. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, can you imagine the brothers all standing around, having all been inspected and rejected? All right? You know what it's like if you've ever been to a playground and people are choosing teams. You're like, well, no, you're kind of the one left. You've been rejected. Here they are. They're rejected. And the scrawny runt of the family is being honored in your presence. Kind of reminds me of another character called Joseph. Interesting, isn't it? The one that seemed the least likely candidate is the one whom God has chosen. Isn't that the strange way that God does things? This is not human logic. This is not human reasoning. This is God's thinking. This is God's purpose just like God to do that. He chooses the most unlikely people to do his will. And he is the one who makes human logic stand on its head. Now, some things we need to note here. Anointing is not the same thing as crowning. This is the record of David's identification as Israel's future king. It is the record of his anointing, and like Saul's anointing, it will remain a secret until the proper time, but it will take him 10 to 15 years, take him years to actually get to the place where he is crowned king. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, he is crowned king of Judah. In 2 Samuel 5, uh, five and verse 3, he's crowned king of Israel. So it's a long time yet for David before he actually is crowned. So there's a difference here with anointing. There's there's a sense in which identification is, is the focus here with a future look to service. And that's really important here to think through. Because the next thing that we see is that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now what's the Spirit of the Lord? It's the Spirit of the Lord that is going to enable him. It's going to strengthen him and and help him to be the one that is, is able to serve God in the right way. And so what's happening here now is that David is being equipped for his preparation to be that king. So when the Spirit of the Lord, on David's life, God is equipping David for that service. Not only does God call David to serve him, but he also gives him the necessary resources to carry out that responsibility. And over the next few years, David will endure various kinds of experiences, various kinds of conflict, including tangling with a bear, tangling with a lion, protecting his flock, He will be betrayed, he'll be trapped, he'll be escaping, he'll be hiding in caves because Saul is looking to kill him. But it'll all be training ground for the kingship to come. See, he is anointed, but there's still all sorts of training that God has for David before he becomes king. Ed began our service today with Psalm 78. And I want to read Psalm 78, verses 70. Through verse 72, it says this, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and brought him to to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. In other words, God used David's lowly shepherding as a training ground for shepherding Israel, the skills and the tools and the ways by which shepherd cared for that flock were just the seed form of what he was going to have to do once he stepped on that throne as the shepherd of Israel, as the king. Because in, in, in God's scheme of things, the king acted as the earthly shepherd of the people. So David's height calling us king required early preparation. One has said, the duties of the shepherd to watch over his flock, to feed and protect them, to heal the sick, to bind up the broken, and to seek out the lamb that was driven away correspond to the responsibilities of a faithful and godly ruler called to care for and to protect his people. And so David here, the anointed king of Israel, would go back to his fields You're anointed king. Now go back to the shepherding fields, right? He was given a huge responsibility and would need to hone his life skills to serve him well in the future. And friends, there's some things that we need to tease out of that that I think are important for us as a church. God may not have anointed you to be king over Israel or Castor Valley, but he has equipped you with his Holy Spirit. This took place at the moment of your salvation. The the coming of the Holy Spirit into your life does not happen at some kind of a future time after your conversion. It all happens at the same moment of conversion. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, you have new life. And the Holy Spirit is there now to to guide you and to direct you through God's word to understand and to do the things that God has called you to do. He is there to equip us. So every day is training ground for growth in Christ's likeness. God uses every trial and every victory to grow and strengthen us. He uses every heartache and every accomplishment He sends us to work for him now, but he is also preparing us for work in the future. And as we look toward training men to serve the church as pastors and teachers, as we look toward raising up women who can handle the word and can minister it in the right context, we must be careful not to hinder that natural growth. One of the criteria or qualifications for an elder is that he not be a novice or a recent convert. So even David, although he was just maybe 15 or so at this point in time, needed time to grow and to mature and to, be, to have experience. And that experience would now help him in his capacity as king. And then another criteria for a deacon is that they be tested first. So the church is given the responsibility of seeking out those who have the desire for the office of a bishop. and then to train them to serve. Leadership takes time, it takes training, it takes experience, it takes humility. And as Samuel models for us, the most important character quality over time is one's willingness to listen to and obey the word of God. Now there's some things that are important for us to flesh out a little bit more here as it relates to David and Jesus, and I'll be brief, but of all the types of Christ in the Old Testament, this is probably the greatest and the clearest. We're talking about types, we're talking about people, we're talking about events, we're talking about institutions intended to foreshadow the coming of Christ. Jesus, of course, is identified as the son of David. He is a king like David. So just as David was the king chosen by God, so God said of Jesus, This voice comes out of a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. was at his baptism. And just as David was born in Bethlehem, so was Jesus. And just as David was not chosen according to his outward appearance, neither was Jesus. Isaiah 53 in verse 2 says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire of him. And just as David lived in obscurity before his public work, so too did Jesus. And just like David, Jesus had to patiently endure obscurity and suffering before entering into his glory as king. There's more to say on that, and over the weeks as we look at David's life, we're going to make those connections more and more. But David is a type of Christ. It doesn't mean that David was perfect, but there are aspects about David's life that clearly point to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, being the King of Israel, and the King of kings that rules the world. Now what started out as a day of continual grieving over Saul and Israel has turned into a lesson on how to see clearly in this world. Saul is rejected, that is God's wisdom, That is God's will. David is the Lord's anointed and not Eliab because God looks on the heart and not the outward appearance. And it was a day of great courage and certain hope for Samuel. I think Samuel left that day differently than he left in the previous account. It says in Samuel, rose up and went to Ramah. You might even add in there, in different spirits. Because God had provided his chosen king. Now as we bring things to a close here, um, I I wanted to take some some time here and and flesh some, some thoughts out further from this text that I think are really important for us to see and to ask ourselves some questions. And these questions are all gonna be questions that I want you to ask yourself, although as a church we could ask them, but I want you to ask them personally. Okay, number one, do I listen to the voice of God and obey. Friends, if, if, if we can't grasp that this is so important from the pages of 1 Samuel, we need to go back and we need to read it again because when, when people do not listen to God's word, when they do not obey God's word, trouble is always coming. God communicates his word for our benefit, for our good. God reveals his heart, he reveals his desire, he reveals his word, or his will, through the pages of his word, and so as we take time to read it, and to study it, and understand how we do that, and how we do that accurately, a lot of people today will say, well, no one can really study God's word and come out with the right interpretation, because there's so many different interpretations out there, it's just your interpretation, that's just your interpretation, I have my interpretation of that, listen, hogwash... When you study a piece of literature, there's a way in which you go about studying that piece of literature. If it's narrative, you're looking for a plot line. You're looking for a climax. You're looking for the focus of attention in the story. You do that also in historical narrative, which is what we're looking at here. When you're looking at poetry, you're looking at all the different ways that it describes different things. The world wants people to think that Christians just kind of open their Bibles and find a verse just to hate people about. I hate. It's kind of like, what is it, the, that, that movie um, At Christmas, The Grinch, right? He just stands on there and says, I hate you! And you know, here's another verse, I hate you! And I hate you! Listen, honest, genuine, godly Christians are Bereans. That means they're people who will listen to what is said, they'll open up their Bibles and they'll study it carefully and accurately to see if it is true. Now certainly there are people who distort God's word and come to conclusions because they have a faulty method, I call it a hermeneutic, of understanding how to approach scripture. So our job then is to learn how to study God's word, not just to read it, but to learn how to approach it. That's what we're trying to do in the Ladies' Simeon Trust. That's what we're trying to do with the Men's Simeon Trust. We want the people of Gateway to learn to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to glorify God, but then to come and to to salivate over his word, but to know how to approach it appropriately so that we will not make mistakes of misinterpreting scripture. We'll see it for what it actually says. But are we willing to listen to the voice of God and to obey it? Sometimes people don't want to study God's word because they're afraid of what it will say. It's much better to step back and say, well, you know, I know the Bible says, I think it says, I'm not sure, it's okay. And we'd rather be fuzzy because fuzziness leaves us free than to do what we want to do. Clarity in studying God's word means, you know what, this is what God says. And like Samuel, we have to determine, are we gonna listen and obey or not? So don't fear it. If God has given us his word, he's given it to us as a gift. He's given it to show us what man really looks like, he's to show us our hearts, and to show areas in which we need to confess our sin. Now I realize sometimes people you know, in the world think, you know, all we're talking about is sin, 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 and we just wanna just take that finger of, of pointing and say, ah, you sinner. And there's an element of truth to say, listen, that is what you are. But God does that in such a way for the purpose of our restoration, of our reconciliation. The reality is, as we talked about last week, God's wrath is coming on those who don't believe. And so are we willing to simply open up God's word and speak truthfully what it says? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to obey? Secondly, do we weep for the sin and rebellion of God's people? It is so easy when we hear of a believer who has fallen into sin or who is? going down the path of rebellion to respond in cynical, gossipy, harsh ways. God's word tells us if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual restore him in the spirit of what? Gentleness or meekness, depending on the translation that you have. God has given us his word to minister to those who have fallen in sin and to do that in a gentle way, to draw them back to where they need to be. Again, the world thinks that that's not how Christians function, that they just go out you know, marching down after that person and smacking them silly and dragging them back into church. No, 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 no. We grieve when people stumble in sin. We grieve when they are in rebellion against God. We grieve when they have... They have been distorted in their thinking by false teaching that is so prevalent today. We grieve. And if we don't grieve, it's possible either that our hearts are callous or that we have a cynical edge. So be careful, friends. Be careful that we're not so hard that we're not doing what God is calling us to do here, to grieve over the condition and to weep over the sin and rebellion of God's people. God is the one who will ultimately call them to judgment. Yet we still speak the truth. We still come beside them revealing God's word and calling them to repent. But we do it in a
0: tone
1: and in a way that reflects the gravity and the sadness of our awareness of their situation. Number three, do I measure the spiritual maturity of people based on externals or heart issues? It's a really important question. I mean, if you were to filter in your mind through the people that you know to be God's children, how do you determine where they stack, so to speak, on their on their growth toward Christ likeness. Well, this person's mature, and this person's mature, and this person's still got things to work on. How do we do do that? And there's always the possibility that we we allow this external kind of presentation to be the means by which we come to a a conclusion about those people. And God is saying to us, listen, be very, very careful about that. Because the externals can be deceptive. In fact, sometimes, sometimes there can be, and I'm just thinking about, say, a, a young girl who seems to be very, very gaudy and flashy. And you think, boy, what's, what's wrong with her? You know, she's just in rebellion. But actually what's going on is she is totally alone and insecure. And, and her, outward, her outward expression is screaming, I want someone to care for me. I want someone to love me. But see, we're so easily drawn away by what we see that we don't actually see what is going on in person. And God says, no, no, let's change the way we look. Now that's hard for us, isn't it? And so the way in which we go about that is we say, okay, God, teach us how to discern. We go to God in prayer and say, give me a right understanding, a right perspective. Let me go gently with this person. Let me draw them in and as we talk, as, the, as out of the mouth the heart speaks, I can begin now to minister the truth of God's word into that heart as that person listens. So we must be careful that as we go about measuring people's spirituality, I'm not saying that we're walking around measuring everyone, we're not putting like an A and a B and a C on different people and you got an A plus and you got an A minus. And we're not doing that kind of stuff, but I think there's a natural part of us that says, hey, this person, this is a a godly person I can trust, or this is, I'm probably not gonna go to this person to ask them for advice, right, and we, we, we think that way. Be careful how you measure, and that the externals are not the way that you do that. The fourth thing, am I looking to help the church raise godly young men and women by allowing them to take on responsibility and grow in their faith? See, so one of the things that we are committed to as part of our core, core values is that we're committed to the next generation. And I was just thinking about this. In the context of our church, we right now have two young men that typically help out with ushering, right? We have my son, Adam. We have Joel, who's been helping out. If you're a young lady who desires to, to honor God and to serve God, we, we have opportunities in serving with our children's ministry. The point that I'm trying to make here is this. What are we doing to say, I want to invest in that next generation by giving them areas of responsibility and then seeing those areas of responsibility being taken care of by those individuals so that as they may have a heart for God and even want to consider ministry, they will already have been proving themselves in the context of the church. So someone says, you know, I really feel that God is calling me to be a pastor. Well, hey, I'll sit down and you preach, buddy. Is that what we do? No, we say, hey, listen, I'm really, really glad to hear that. I want to spend some time with you. I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to find out what you're passionate about and why. And there's a process that needs to, we need to go through to get to the place where we can say, you know what, you're on the right path. This is a genuine call. This is, this is something that God is doing in your life, and we affirm it and we see it. So we have a responsibility as a church, but you also have a responsibility to help the church raise godly men and women by allowing them to take on responsibility and grow in their faith. That means that sometimes we hand over responsibility to people who are still learning, which means that our church at times is not going to do things perfectly like you do it. There's going to be struggles, and they might get a lesson wrong in the children's ministry, or you know, they might get the ushering wrong, or maybe they're helping out with the band, or maybe they're involved in some other way, and they may, maybe they're reading scripture, and they get a couple of words wrong, or they're, they're coming up to some names in the Old Testament, and they totally hash them, right? It's okay. Why? Because we're not about being perfect in church. We're about grooming people toward Christ's likeness in the context of church want to have a right spirit and right attitude toward that so just like david there's a training time and those training times are then means by which we help people arrive at the place for their service for god and lastly do i care about preparing and training followers of christ to live for god and what i'm emphasizing here is apart from sunday morning uh preaching, which by the way is not just preaching, but it is also discipleship. I, my, my goal in ministering the word is that your hearts would be affected and changed by the word of God, that you would go home and you would re, re, kind of rehash what is being said and say, God, what are you teaching me? What are you trying to show me? But then there's, there's other tears that happen now as that unfolds into the church. And do we care about the training of, of followers of Christ to live for God? The, the church And you can all be a part of this process that says we want to see that take place. We want to see people grow. That's why on a Wednesday night we have a cornerstone class. It's a means by which we're saying, you know what? These people are going to go through these 20-something lessons together because we want to invest in them and we want to see them grow in these different areas. It doesn't have to happen through that, but it can happen in other areas. The point is, if you want to see that, then maybe you will be a part of something, not because you want to benefit from it, because you want to be the one that is benefiting others. That you're saying, this is important. I want to be used by God to nurture people in their walk, in their growth toward Christ likeness. So maybe God will put on your heart a particular person in this church to say, I'm going to meet up with them one-on-one. and We're just going to read God's word together and we're going to encourage one another and we're going to grow. Or it could be in the framework that we already have. The point is, is that a heart desire that you have? We need that. God desires that for his church. Friends, God sees things differently than we see them. And we are, in a sense, walking around like Picasso, needing help. And we're not going to get that help unless we humble ourselves before God's word, listening to it preached, listening to it taught, reading it for ourselves, discussing it with other people who have the same desires. It's so important for us to grow in learning how to see the heart rather than what man actually gives us. Lord, help us today. This is hard for us. We can just step back and by default say, okay, God, you're the only one that can do that. And yet, Lord, you give us tools to really ascertain the heart. So, Lord, help us to learn from you, to learn from your word, to do our part, Lord, as as ones who are the recipients of your truth, Lord, to listen to it, to obey it, to live it, and in the midst of all that, Lord, to see that, that the freedom that we have now to live our lives is not because of anything that we have done. It's all because of what you have done on the cross, Lord. You went to that cross. You died in our place. You, in doing that, Lord, you paid for our sin. And having embraced you as Lord and Savior, we have entered into this new life this life, Lord, that is full of the activity of the Holy Spirit in us, that works in conjunction with your word to feed us and to fuel us and to grow us. Lord, may we not take that lightly. May we see the majesty of your kingship, but Lord, may we also see the importance of following as citizens of that kingdom with the guide and the help of the Holy Spirit. And the word of God, Lord, may we allow those things to be fuel for living for your glory, we ask in your precious name, amen.